Well, we're continuing this morning in the book of Acts with Paul now on uh, what is known as his second missionary journey. And in the text, which was read from Acts 16, I want to focus on the conversion of Lydia, which was the second half of the text we read. So first, I'll just briefly summarize the first part of the text. For whatever reason, really inscrutable to us, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit from speaking the word in Asia. That is Asia Minor, a province of what is today Turkey. And so they, they attempted to go even further north to, into Bithynia, which is another province in Asia Minor, and were told the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. We don't know why. We don't know how Paul and his team knew, but they knew the Holy Spirit who interestingly is called here the Spirit of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit was forbidding them, and they knew it. And then what happens is Paul gets a vision. A vision in the night, a man of Macedonia is standing there and urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And, you know, upon the reception of this vision, verse 10 says, we... And notice the we, this is the first time you get Luke, including himself, in the narrative. Luke's now part of Paul's team. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding, really unsurprisingly, that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So what they do is they sail across the northern Aegean Sea. It's like 150 miles. They sail west, and they, make, they land in Macedonia. They make their way inland about 10 miles to this major, essentially, port city called Philippi. Luke tells us it's a leading city. It's a strategic place, a leading city of the district of Macedonia. So it's in northeast Greece. And here, for the first time in history, the gospel reaches the shores of what we today call Europe. Philippi is named after Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. And it received this high honor of becoming a Roman colony in 42 B.C., which made it essentially legally a piece of Rome transported abroad. And so Paul and his team, they stay there, we're told, for some days in the city. And that brings us to our concern. So we'll make the three points that are there on the outline in your bulletin about Lydia, her heart, her household, her home. So first, her heart. So they'd been there for, for some days, and on the Sabbath day, right? this is the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday, the day of Jewish worship, they went outside the gate to the riverside. Which is a curious thing, because we can't say exactly why, but they do no ministry, or at least no recorded ministry, inside such a leading city. Instead, they go outside the city gates, and they go down to a river. And they went down to the river, we're told, because they supposed or they conjectured or maybe they heard that there was a place of prayer. So it's odd, if you will, that in a city of this strategic importance, there appears to be no organized synagogue. Because if there was, that's where Paul would have went. A synagogue would require 10 Jewish men, 10 heads of households in order to be organized. 
And in the absence of such a thing, it looks like Paul and his team are going to head to this open-air, riverside prayer meeting. Some ad hoc gathering they must have heard about. And they'd probably meet at the river because there might be, you know, religious washings. You might have to baptize a proselyte to Judaism. So you'd meet down by the river. And it turns out it's a woman's prayer meeting. They sat down and they spoke to the women who had come together. And so the vision of the man of Macedonia who called for help turns to direct them to a, turns out to direct them to a women's prayer service. And to one woman in particular. It's, it's as if, if you're reading the narrative closely, it's as if God is saying, no, you can't preach in Asia Minor. No, you can't preach in the north part of Asia Minor. No, you have to go across the sea. You have to go to Philippi. And you can't go in the city of Philippi. You're going to go outside of Philippi to a river, to a group of women, to this woman. One woman. Verse 14. One who heard us, that is, who was listening, heard here means listening attentively, was a woman named Lydia. She becomes the first convert, or at least the first recorded convert in what would later be called Europe. And get this, this is the providence of God, right? She's from Thyatira, which happens to be over in Asia Minor, where God told Paul, you can't preach over there. On the other side of the Aegean. So they were forbidden by the Spirit to preach in Asia where Thyatira is. Then they're sent across the sea to Philippi, and who do they meet? A woman from Thyatira, who now lives in Philippi. Such is the providence of God. Now, Thyatira, you might recall this. Uh, it's among one of the seven churches addressed by the risen Lord in the book of Revelation. Lydia's from there. And we're told she's a seller. She's a businesswoman. She's a seller of purple goods. Right? Thyatira was known for its dyes and its textiles. And it's, uh, the color purple is associated with the empire and with its wealth, with its royalty. You might recall in Luke's gospel, same author, right? Luke writes both books, Luke and Acts. He tells a parable about a rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted. Feasted sumptuously every day, Luke says. So we have Lydia. She's a businesswoman. She appears to have some independence and wealth. It's hard to say how much. And in addition, this woman was, we're told, a worshiper of God. She's a worshiper of God, which almost certainly means she's a Gentile who's attached herself to the synagogue. And she appreciates the monotheism and the ethical teachings of Judaism, but she's not a convert. And then we're told that the Lord, and when you see the word Lord here, it means the risen Lord Jesus through the Spirit. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to, to adhere to, to respond to, to believe what was said out of Paul's mouth. It's a very quiet, right, but powerful testimony to what we sang of. Right, to God's grace in salvation. God opened her heart. Right, hearts are not naturally open. They're naturally closed. They're naturally hostile. Her, her sinful heart. 
her darkened heart, her unbelieving heart. It's true, we freely and we willingly believe, but only because God has first made us willing. He's opened up our hearts. The confession of faith puts it wonderfully, our Westminster Confession, it puts it this way, that God enlightens our unbelieving minds, spiritually and savingly, to understand the things of God. And he takes away our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. He renews our wills. And by his almighty power, he determines our wills to what is good and he effectually draws us to Jesus Christ. That's what happens when someone's converted. And yet, our confession says, in such a way that we come most freely, being made willing by his grace. This is a picture of the good and the gentle and the quiet, non-coercive, but effectual power of God. That's all packed into that little phrase, the Lord opened her heart. This is what we call effectual calling, effective calling. And this is what has happened to Lydia and to you if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you've embraced the gospel. Now, notice here, by her heart is meant her whole inner person. Heart, in this context, includes her intellect, her paying attention to Paul, her listening attentively, her adhering to the word. She's been illumined by the Spirit. Jesus, after his resurrection, the text I read from Luke 24, the gospel lesson, opens the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures. God illumines our minds and he removes our heart of stone. Illumines our minds, removes our hearts of stone by his grace. And he does this by his word. He does this by his spirit working with the word in conjunction. And here we see just that. Right? Paul speaks, there's the word, and the spirit opens Lydia's heart. Word and spirit. Never separated, always together, always the instruments of God's sovereign saving action in the world. Right? How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. You can't see it. You can't measure it. You can't calculate it. But there it is. The Lord opened her heart. And this is the teaching of Holy Scripture from, from one end to the other. Right? Salvation is of the Lord. God saves from beginning to the end. God did not open Lydia's heart 97.6% of the way. He makes us freely and willingly believe the gospel. This is the glory of grace. He grants us, we're told, 2 Timothy 2.5, repentance. Repentance is, according to our confessions, an evangelical, meaning a gospel, grace. Meaning it's a gift that comes through the proclamation of the gospel. He grants us faith, Philippians 1.29. It's a gift. It is not of ourselves. We read that in the call to worship from Ephesians 2.8. He removes our stony hearts and replaces them with hearts of flesh. We heard that in the Old Testament lesson from Ezekiel 36. 
right? The God who created the world from nothing, by his word and spirit, makes you a new creature. By the same creative word that he made the world with, he remakes us. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's Genesis 1, has shown in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In short, as we saw back in Acts 13, those whom he appoints to eternal life believe. Lydia is now among them. And the Gospels reach the shores of Europe. The Lord graciously, unilaterally, opened her heart. And thus she believed the word that came from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. So the second thing then, that's her heart. Second thing's her household. Verse 15 tells us that she and her household were baptized. So she's the head of the household, apparently, which probably means she's either single or she's divorced or perhaps she's widowed. Later, we'll see that she speaks of them coming to my house and stay. And when Paul and Silas are later released from a Philippian prison, what do they do before they leave town? They go to Lydia's house because her house has become the base for the church in Europe. Now, these households would often include uh, male and female servants, and of course, sometimes children. What's important here for our view of baptism is the principle of the whole household having the sign of the covenant administered to it. She believed, and her, along with her house, were baptized. This is how it's been from the time of Abraham. Abraham received the sign of circumcision upon believing, and then the males of his household subsequently received it as infants. So the sign of the covenant came after faith for adults and before faith for the little ones in their households. This was because God administered his covenant through family units. This is difficult for some of us, I understand that, uh, because it, cu- it cuts against our native and our, especially our American individualism. But covenant theology deals with peoples, with corporate entities, not with isolated, lone individuals. So here in our text, notice this, right? Without any explanation, without any need to expound or defend it, we're told that she was baptized and her household as well. Now, we are told that she believed. We are not told that the members of her household believed. Now, do I think this proves the case for infant baptism? No. Not by itself. But it's pretty compelling evidence. Perhaps everyone in the household had to profess faith before being baptized. But if so, we are not told that. And that, here's the key, that would be a novelty in the history of redemption. Because the covenant sign had for hundreds, even thousands of years, been applied to the children of believers. Perhaps there were no children in Lydia's household. Perhaps. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. There are four household baptisms. If you will, pledges of household salvation. If you believe, your house will be saved. Four mentioned by Luke in the book of Acts. 
always mentioned without any explanation. He just assumes you know what's happening. Chapter 11 is the first one. We've already looked at it. Peter reports how the God-fearing centurion, Cornelius, was told to send for Peter, who will, quote, declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Here in our text this morning, we have a God-fearing Gentile woman whose household is baptized upon her embrace of the gospel. Later in this chapter, the Philippian jailer believes and he and his household are baptized. In chapter 18 of Acts, the ruler of the synagogue believed, it says, together with his household. And if you want a fifth example, Paul mentions baptizing the household of Stephanus. Now, it's possible, I mean, just barely, I think, that all in these households profess faith. But that seems unlikely. Some, perhaps, I mean, is it really probable that none of these households had children? Or that if they did, they were not baptized? That seems extremely unlikely. Especially given the Old Testament precedent of family solidarity and the covenant. In any event, Lydia believes, and she and her household, which apparently was at the prayer meeting with her, got baptized. So salvation and the sacrament of entrance into the covenant, the sacrament of initiation, salvation and baptism, they work in and through households. So finally then, her home, and here I mean her physical house. After Lydia and her household are baptized, she urges them, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. This probably has the force of something like, If you now consider me a true believer, as evidenced in my baptism, come to my house and stay. Now, I think it's remarkable that this is her first instinct. This is her first post-conversion act wrought in her by the Word and Spirit to invite four men and who knows who else from the prayer meeting to her house. Now, she would know some stuff, like she would know, as one attached to the synagogue, Yahweh's concern for mercy and for the stranger. And she would know of Yahweh's delight in holy feasting. But she doesn't know that this Paul, who she's inviting over with his companions and with his missionary team, she doesn't know that and later, in Romans 12, he'll say this, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. She doesn't have a, co- a pocket New Testament. Or that this same Paul will say that elders are to be hospitable. Or that Hebrews would say, we should not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Or that Peter would say we should practice hospitality without grumbling. Which tells you two things, right? It needs to be practiced, and we probably don't like it. And Lydia doesn't just ask them to stop by. She says, come to my house and stay. We're not sure for how long. 
And she was insistent. The text says she prevailed upon us. She constrained us. She was not taking no for an answer. It's remarkable. Hospitality, open-hearted generosity, including with one's home, is the fruit of true conversion. In this case, the immediate fruit. And this, this is not like an arbitrary random thing. It has a deep logic in the gospel. Hospitality does. Because God has generously opened his heart and made you and let you enter into his house. And made you a part of his household. And welcomed us at that table to sit down and eat and drink with him. Hospitality is the logic of the gospel. It's the DNA. We were strangers. We were alienated. And God has invited us into his house. The whole point of the word of God is feeding us. Right? Feeding us. And the heart of the supper is God hosting us at a meal in his house. Now, Lydia probably hasn't constructed all of this theology, but she knows it. Psalm 36 says, a beautiful psalm, delightful psalm, says, We feast on the abundance of your house. We drink from the river of your delights. Now, let me, let me just add a caveat here, a caveat. I know there are reasons that some folks struggle with hospitality. Maybe they work long hours. Maybe they don't like to cook. Maybe there's resource constraints. There are other considerations which can make hospitality very difficult for some people. I don't want to be insensitive to these issues. I can tell you I'm not. Not everybody has the same gifts. But it does remain a command for the whole church. We can't, we can't seem to avoid the force of this, right? Right? And there are a myriad of ways to do it, to open one's heart, one's time, one's resources, to make room for another person in the body, to connect with them and to nourish them body and soul. And so we may need to pray for the Spirit to show us how to implement this beautiful command, even if opening our home is daunting or infeasible for some reason. There are other ways to do it. But the opening of the home is the norm. And that's what Lydia does. So in closing, then, I want to say a word about the three things we see in this text. It's a very simple text, but it's a very powerful text. We have the preached word. We have the sacrament. We have hospitality. Now, if you're on the session, you probably know what I'm going to say next. Um, But I would argue that it's these three things. It's this combination of things which turned the world upside down, right? Luther said, he only did, they asked him about the success of the Reformation, and he said, well, most of the success happened while I was sleeping. That's the first thing he said. And then he said, really, I only did two things. I did two things. I preached the word, and I drank beer with the saints. That's it. Meaning, I I fellowshiped, I engaged in hospitality. Right? His, His whole table talk books are a testimony of this. Like, huge portions of the Reformation take place at Luther's table and in Calvin's house. I preached the word. I drank beer with the saints. If all the church did was worship God by means of word and sacrament and just organically practice hospitality, can you imagine how potent that would be? In in our world, our world of, of despair and loneliness and fragmentation 
and isolation and division and alienation and invitation to someone's house for a meal is an act of affirmation and love. It's, a ra- it's as radical an act as you can make in these fragmented, isolated times. You could, I suggest, pretty much discontinue all other church activities if you could get these three things right. Word, sacrament, hospitality. The early church didn't need much of what we do. They had these three things, right? The Reformation certainly didn't. And frankly, it doesn't appear that the church emerging in other parts of the world today needs much either. But we do need this. We need word, we need sacrament, and we need organic love for one another, which might not feel real organic to some of us. Word, sacrament, and be hospitable to one another without complaint. So much of what we do, we do through the church as an institution, and there's nothing wrong with that, of course. And there's plenty that's right with it, you know, through the church's programs or things. But a lot of it's because it doesn't happen organically. Or let's put it this way. What the church does as an institution is to facilitate and stimulate the organic stuff. We have a fellowship meal every month in the hope that there will be dozens of other fellowship meals that we don't script or schedule. We don't have to pit the two against each other. But the things the church does can never be substitutes. They're stimulants. But sometimes they do become substitutes and things don't happen organically. But in Philippi, in this one woman, it all happens without prodding, without programming, without scheduling. She heard the word. She and her household were baptized. And her first Christian act was opening her house for an extended stay to some strangers who are saints. We have to imitate this example. I personally believe you could probably toss almost all the evangelism strategies of the church away and just do this, and you could convert the world more, more likely. Again, evangelism is a wonderful thing. We have to have them. But this is a form of evangelism, too. It's a form of love. So believe the gospel. Receive the sacraments. The sacraments are God's food. For his household pilgrims journeying to yet another feast, a heavenly feast. And having been nourished and nurtured by the goodness of God, accepted and received into his house, practice. Notice that word, practice. Hospitality. Welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. That's what hospitality is. That's what Paul tells the Roman Christians. Welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. Amen. Amen. Amen.